scripture reading for this morning is going to be out of 1 Timothy. It's going to be verses 12 through 17. That's on page 1176 in the Black Pew Bible. There should be one on the pew back in front of you. Again, that's 1 Timothy, verses 12 through 17 on page 1176. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were, who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, let's pray, and then we will uh, get started. <clears throat> Father, be with me this morning. Uh, please help me to lead uh, properly. Uh, Father, I ask that you would just speak through me, that it would just be absolutely nothing for me, and that I would get none of the glory, and that you would get all of it. Um, Lord, I ask that you would help me to teach your word uh, properly, correctly, passionately, um, and Lord, I pray that you would use the word and you would convict hearts and draw people to yourself this morning, Lord. Um, Lord, I ask that if there's anyone in here that, that does not know you, that's never repented, Father, that you would convict them uh, of their sin uh, through the teaching of your word, Father, and they would come to a, a saving faith in you. Um, thank you for the worship team. Thank you for all those that uh, are a part of our Sunday morning, Lord, that, that get everything running, uh, that do a lot of things behind the scenes. Thank you for those folks, Lord. Um, uh, help us this morning. I pray that uh, everything that I say would just glorify you, Father, and that we would be wholeheartedly focused on you, not on anything else. Uh, we just ask that you would receive all the glory, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're in 1 Timothy. Paul is writing uh, this letter to his apprentice, Timothy, and he's giving instruction. He's giving instruction on how the church should function and how their shepherd should care for them. Talking about Timothy, right? It's, it's sort of like a manual uh, on the life of the church. But the letter's not just useful for Timothy. The letter was to be read to the church. And so it was helpful then, and so it's helpful for the church now. It's helpful for us today. Paul has talked so far in Timothy, um, the, the false teachers that he has talked about, uh, they were using the law incorrectly, right? They were taking the law um, and twisting it a bit. They were teaching myths. They were teaching genealogies. Uh, they were teaching things that just promoted a lot of speculation, a lot of doubt, a lot of confusion. Uh, they muddied the water, so to speak. They just made everything, uh, uh, they made it uncertain. They wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't really understand the law in the first place. Right? In fact, they misused the law by combining it with myths, genealogies. And so this prompts Paul to recall his experience, to recall his experience with grace. He's thinking about uh, what the false teachers have done, and it's, it's, he's, then he's thinking about himself. He's thinking about his own experience with Christ. And so he's going to show us the uh, results of the stewardship, the economy, the, the house rules of God by sharing his own story. The false teachers, they were promoting doubt, right? 
And Paul's seeking to do the exact opposite here. He's reminding us of his story to encourage, to promote faith. Uh, He's saying, hey, don't be discouraged. This is what, don't don't, don't worry about all that stuff that's uncertain. Here's what I do know for certain. And he's sharing his story. This is what God has done for me. This is what God has done for me. Uh, Don't doubt, don't speculate, because I know for sure because I've experienced it. He's using his own evidence, his own experience as evidence uh, of the transforming power of God. And this is the story of how Paul was changed by the gospel. This change could have never occurred uh, as a result of the bad teaching in Ephesus. And so that brings us to our first point. And the first point is, is, is just recognize God's personal grace to Paul in verses 12 through 14. Let's read that together, verses 12 through 14. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul thanks the the source of his strength which is Christ Jesus our Lord. He thanks God because uh, the Lord has judged him faithful and he had appointed him to his service. Paul wasn't always how he is, right? He was a blasphemer, a a persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's an opponent with no respect. He was those things. And so he's expressing his gratitude that comes from his own personal history, right? Right? That comes from his own experience. He hunted down Christians. That's what Paul did. He sought to devastate the church. To destroy or to ruin. Paul was a brutal man. A a, a bloody man. Had blood on his hands. Luke describes him like this in Acts 9. Acts 9, 1 and 2. But Saul, that's Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul, he wanted to get permission to go to another city, take the Christians down there, bring them back home to Jerusalem. He was a religious predator. He prayed along Uh, those that belong to the way. That's what he was. His goal was to absolutely exterminate the church. Luke describes him as breathing out murderous threats. Uh, A.T. Robertson said this, threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that saw breathe like a war horse who sniffed the smell of a battle. This is what Paul was. He was a frightening, violent enemy. If the book of Acts was a movie, if the book of Acts was a movie, up to chapter 9, Paul would be one of the main villains. And Paul, later, he described how he was in Acts 26. He said this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This sound like the Paul that you know? He was cold-hearted. He was calloused. He was a self-righteous murderer that was hell-bent on the destruction of the church. 
He had hatred. He had zealousness. And it grew so much that terrorizing those in Jerusalem wasn't enough. So where does he want to go? He gets these special papers. He says, hey, I want to go to Damascus. I don't, I, this area is not enough. I want to expand my territory. Let me go to Damascus. Let me get the Christians there. Let me bind them up. Let me take them back. He said, okay. So he got the, he got the, and then he made his way to Damascus, and that's where everything changed. And that's the story that we all know so well. Acts 9, uh, 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul, the ravager, the persecutor of the church, from then on, he became a major player, not just in, in the rest of the Bible, but in the story of Christianity. He began to then preach the same gospel that he sought to destroy. He, he wrote about this in his letter to the Galatians. Let's turn there. Turn to Galatians. That's six books to the left. Turn to Galatians with me. It should be, I think, up there too, right? Yeah. But just let's just turn. I want to hear some pages turn. Galatians 1. Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned then to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am not writing to you, before God I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Uh, they were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. He was seeking to destroy the church, and now he's completely flipped. He's done a 180. All of this, all of Paul's story that we just went through is running through his mind. He's reminiscing. He's thinking back to what God has done for him, right? For the believers in here, Think about this. When you just sit down and you just begin to reflect and you just think about what God has done for me, just sit back, you think, what has the Lord done for me? You think about your story, right? You think about who you were. You think about how he changed you. You think about what you are now, right? What happens when you're, when you're thinking back on that? You're overwhelmed, right? What happens when you think back about, about what the Lord has done for you? You're overwhelmed, with God's goodness. You're sitting there with an attitude of thankfulness, of gratitude for the Lord's grace. It just, man, it just overwhelms you. I think that's what's happening here with Paul. 
I think he's overwhelmed with thankfulness. He's overwhelmed by the grace of God uh, that he has shown him. And that's why we have this outburst of thanksgiving here. Uh, The phrase, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, make no mistake, he's not saying that, Paul's not saying that he's not responsible for his sin. He's well aware of that. Uh, But he truly was ignorant of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, He thought as a Pharisee that he was truly serving God by stomping out these so-called Christians, right? These members of the way. He thought he was doing right by stomping them out. He sinned while in ignorance and in unbelief. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he didn't know because he had defied God, right? It doesn't matter that he didn't mean to because he defied God. On the Damascus Road, on the Damascus Road, did Paul deserve mercy? Any answers? No. No. Just like when you finally bowed the knee to God, when I finally bowed the knee to God, did we deserve mercy? No. We didn't. And Paul knows that. And so he's thankful. He knows he didn't deserve mercy. He knows he didn't deserve the grace. And so he's thinking about what God has done, and he just can't believe it. He's overwhelmed. And so he just bursts out with thankfulness because he's, I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. Uh, Paul was not only given salvation, but he was also given a role in ministry. He was given apostleship. Uh, He was considered to be faithful, not because he had been faithful, because he wasn't. We know that, right? But because God considered him to be one who would be faithful. He was appointed to his service. His being who? God. He was appointed to God's service. He became an apostle. And Paul then shows his gratitude with the next phrase. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Think of it as an overflowing supply. The Niagara Falls, it it pours over billions of gallons of water every single year. Um, There was a a painting of the falls that was uh, turned into an exhibit, but it had no name. And so the exhibit just named it themselves. They said, okay, we're going to name it More to Follow. More to Follow, that's what they called it. And it's kind of like that. It's a picture of God's grace. Billions of gallons overflowing, but there's always more to follow. It's not the supply that runs out. It is endless, constant. James puts it a different way. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Martin Luther, he, he wrote this. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as a hundred thousand lights might be lit from one and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learn, the more he gives, the more he has. And so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make all the world angels yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace. The point is there's always more to follow. There's always more grace to follow. Paul puts it another way. Romans 5, 20. Now the law came in to increase the the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul was completely undeserving, completely undeserving. Sin stacked as high as the corn we got over there. And he knew that. He was well aware of that. But even so, there is no accumulation of sin that grace cannot overcome. There's always more to follow. Grace increases the more that we need it. I don't know about y'all, I need a lot. I need a lot. The good news is there's always more to follow. Paul is personally thankful. He's thankful for his salvation. He's thankful for his apostleship that was given to him by God. He's thankful for God's mercy. He's thankful for faith. He's thankful for love. But he's thankful for grace. He is thankful for God's grace. And that brings us to the second point. First point was Paul's, uh, God's personal grace to Paul. This is God's grace to the world. Let's read verse 15. Verse 15 together. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul uses that phrase four other times in his pastoral epistles in order to reiterate a basic gospel truth. Whenever he says that, it gets people's attention. Okay? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Okay, what saying is it? Right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you had to sum up the gospel in, in one sentence where you could only have so many words, that may be it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul, he never got away from the fact that salvation was for sinners. Um, Jesus himself said it's not the healthy that need the good doctor, but it is the sick. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am the foremost. Talking about sinners. Some people say that uh, this is false humility by Paul, that this is him kind of putting on a face, um, showing false humility, being disingenuous by saying he's the worst of sinners. And you can imagine... um, some saying, oh, come on, Paul, there's no way. There's no way you're the worst sinner. There's got to be, I know, pff, I live with two of them, right? You, there, you can imagine. Um, but I don't think that's the case. It seems to me that Paul really means this, and it's consistent with how he speaks of himself in, uh, in other texts. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Ephesians 3, 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think this is authentic. I think this is Paul being real. And also notice that he he says, of whom I am the foremost, not of whom I was the foremost. Paul is a believer. He's been a believer for a long time by the time he's writing this. Why does he still consider himself the, 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 the foremost of sinners, right? Surely that can't be right. 
uses the present tense. I think this shows that Paul sees his sin how God sees his sin. He hates it. He despises it. He knew what he had been, what he was, and who he continued to be. Though he's a believer now, guess what he also still is? A sinner. And I think Paul is just well aware of that. And this is, is this not all how we should be? Shouldn't we in humility see our sin the way that God does? And it's not like, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm a bigger sinner than you. No, I'm a bigger sinner. It's not that. I think that's still pride. But in humility, shouldn't we all as believers see our sin the way God does? It's the genuine humility that can only come from a saving faith in Christ. The true Christian heart does not make one feel superior to others. In fact, it does the opposite. It gives a sense of humility knowing that you're just as bad a sinner as anyone else, if not worse. I don't think he's putting on a face here. I don't think he's saying, oh, I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm the worst. I don't think it's that. I think it's genuine, just Christian humility. I think it's a sinner practicing self-awareness more than anything else. Tree verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is now using his own experience, his own case, as an example of what Christ could do with others' lives. If God could and would do this for a man who persecuted Christians, who uh, uh, tore families apart, who voted for people's death, who would he not do the same for? Who could he not do the same for? There's hope for all of us if he would do this for Paul. Paul's reminding Timothy and the church, and it's a reminder to us today. Paul, here's what Paul's saying. Hey, if he can save me, he can save anybody. Pastor and I were texting uh, this week about this text. We were just talking about it. And he's like, remember, just stick to the main point. You know, he's giving me his little, his little pastor, you know, stuff. And uh, he, uh, he's like, remember, stick to the main points. I was like, yeah, I know. If he can save folks that live on Hazel Grove Road, he can save anybody. But that's true. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, if he can save me, the chief of sinners, then he can save anybody. That's true. Whose life can't he change? Nobody. Paul says that in his life, Christ showed perfect patience. That patience never ceased towards him. And that patience has never ceased towards sinners. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient. Paul says he's got perfect patience. If he can save me, man, no telling what he could do with that guy, right? If he can save me. Uh, In 1918, there was a man in Tokyo, Japan, that was hung for murder. He had been sent to prison more than 20 times. He was known as just a fierce, rough, 
tough man. He, they, they, it was said that he was cruel as a tiger. That's an actual quote. And on one occasion, he attacked a prison guard. And so he was beaten and, and he was hung up by his hands up to the ceiling where his feet are barely touching the ground. And he, all he had to do was apologize to the guard, apologize for doing that. Of course, he wouldn't do that. This man would never do something like that. And so he was thrown in, you know, lock-in by himself, solitary confinement. Before getting his death sentence, he received a New Testament by two Christian missionaries. And believe it or not, this man came to saving faith in Christ. This, this criminal, this villain, if there ever was one, he came to know Christ. And so the missionaries began to visit him. And so during one of these visits, uh, one of the missionaries, they, they directed him to 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, and that's talking about suffering. Um, and the criminal, he, he read this line, and it just stuck with him, and he couldn't get it out of his head. It was, poor, yet making many rich. And, and he wrote this. This is what he wrote. This certainly does not apply to the evil life I led before I repented. But perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain who ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ. And so may come to repent also. Then it may be that though I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. People will say that I must have a sorrowful heart because I am daily awaiting the execution of my death sentence. But this is not the case. I feel neither sorrow nor distress nor any pain. Locked up in a prison cell, six feet by nine, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. Day and night, I am talking with Jesus Christ. In 1918, God had reached a man who called himself the most desperate villain who had ever lived. Just as he had reached the Foremost, the chief of sinners 2,000 years before. God can reach anybody. Yes. Whom can he not save? There's no answer. He can truly reach anybody. If you think you're too far gone, you're not. If anybody was, it was those guys you haven't repented before, if you never trusted Christ, you say, ah, I think I'm too far gone. I think, I think I'm too far the other way. You're not. If anybody was, it would have been these two men. If you're wondering if he can save even someone like you, he can. And Paul was 100% convinced of that truth. In fact, Christ's power and eagerness to save anyone is what drove Paul. There was no doubt in his mind. Why was there no doubt in Paul's mind? Because he'd seen it. He'd experienced it. If anybody was too far gone, it was him. And if you're a believer, you should be the same way. Someone asking you, hey, how do I know that God can actually save me? We well, say, dude, if he could save me, then he could save you. Right? He did it for me. If he can save me, he can save you. No one on earth is beyond grace. No one on earth is beyond grace. There's always more to follow. If anyone 
was. There would have been the man walking from Jerusalem to Damascus. Verse 17, and it brings us to our third point. And it's just Paul's thankfulness to God. Paul's thankfulness to God. Verse 17. To the king of all, sorry, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John Calvin writes this. His enthusiasm breaks out into this exclamation, speaking of Paul, since he could find no words to express his gratitude. These sudden outbursts of Paul's come mainly when the vastness of the subject overpowers him and makes him break off what he's saying. For what could be more powerful, more wonderful than Paul's conversion? At the same time, he admonishes all of us by his example that we should never think of the grace shown in God's calling without being lost in wondering admiration. This sublime praise of God's grace swallows up all the memory of his former life. How great a deep is the glory of God. Paul's thinking and he's considering what God has done. What God has done for him, what God has done for the world. And he can only sing praises as a result. We should be the same way. We're reflecting on what God has done. Our only response should just be praise, gratitude. He calls him the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. The king of ages, he sovereignly governs every age before creation, after creation, the final age, eternity. He's a God of ages. Immortal, he's not subject to decay or destruction. He is imperishable, incorruptible, and immortal. Invisible, the physical eye cannot see him. He lives in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. The only God... He alone is what he is. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Our little kids would know that. We sing a song about that. I am God and there is no other. What should we do in response to this text? How should we apply it. And I think there's a lot of ways that you can go, and the small groups will be able to do that. They'll be able to run in a lot of different directions for this. For the believer, I think there's several application points. First, I think that we should praise the Lord for the personal grace that we've received upon our lives, just like Paul did. We should reflect upon what God has done for us regularly, often, I would say. Think back to, man, what was I? Who was I before the Lord changed me? And then we should be moved to praise because of that. We should be moved to praise because we're remembering what God has done. We should reminisce on how the Lord has changed our lives, and we shouldn't be able to contain our praise, just like Paul. We should have to break out into praise. Uh, Secondly, we should praise the Lord for general grace that he pours out upon the world. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Son of God came into the world to die and be raised from the dead to save sinners. We should just be thankful. We should just be, that should make us want to run a marathon. We should be motivated because of what God has done. 
And we should praise him because also not one of us deserve it. Raise your hand in here if you deserve. No, of course not. None of us deserve it. And then uh, for the non-believer. Our, our culture today, I think, is pretty obsessed with getting what they deserve, right? Like, uh, I've worked here however long. I deserve this. I deserve your job. I deserve a raise. I deserve a promotion. I deserve whatever. I think our culture today is pretty obsessed with getting what we, what we deserve. You say, ah, man, I just really feel like I, I need to get what I deserve. I say, no, you don't. You don't want what you deserve. I don't either. Because you deserve what I deserve. And you don't want it. What I deserve, what I've deserved from living a life opposed to God, is death in this life and the next. I deserve eternal separation relationally from God. I deserve for his, his wrath to be poured out on me. That's what I deserve. You deserve the same. Don't ask for what you deserve from God because you don't want it. If you want to not get what you deserve, like Paul, like many others in here today, cry out to the Lord. Ask the Lord to save you. Repent of your sins. Repent means to turn from you're living your life one way, you repent, you turn from that, you live a new life, you turn from that, but you don't just turn in the opposite direction, you turn and you run towards Christ. And you embrace Him. Ask Him to save you. Repent. Trust what He did. What He did is He sent His Son to live the perfect life that you and I can't live. That we don't live. That we've never lived. To die a death on the cross that you and I do deserve and be raised from the dead. Trust that he did that for you. And you won't get what you deserve. Trust that that was for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for all their hard work and time and effort that went into it. Thank you for the worship team. Thank you for uh, the greeters. Thank you for those doing sound, those teaching children and small groups. Lord, I pray that those in here now, if they have not repented and trusted you, Father, they would just cry out to you. They'd be aware of their need for grace. that you would just save them, Lord. Lord, help us as believers to... Help us to reflect on what you've done for us. Lord, so often we take for granted what you have done, what you've done for us, what you've done for the world. But help us to reflect on that this week, today. Help us to reflect on what you've done for us and just be overwhelmed by it. Be moved to praise. us to reflect on what you've done in sending your son to die on the cross to pay for sinners. Lord, be with us this week. 
Help us to do that. Help us to reflect. Help us to be motivated. Help us to serve you. Better this week, Father, because we reflected on what you've already done for us. Help us to love you better. Help us to love others better this week, Father. We love you. We love Jesus. We ask you to increase our love for you. Increase our desire to please you. May we just be a church that is so seeking to please you. We love you and praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.